When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Hey, Fitz. Hey, Cordelia. How's it going? Good. Question. Do you remember your first summer job out of high school? Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, I had a job working as a runner at a legal office. So it was like, imagine a world without the internet and papers needed to go places. And basically, you would run papers to, you wouldn't actually run it. Like, I think maybe in the old days you would, but you would walk papers down to the courthouse or to other branches of the legal things or drop papers off to be signed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I remember, I guess that was like the first job I had where I could drive because they had this car and it was like just old it had no air conditioning this was in florida so it would be like if i had to drive somewhere it was just like stepping into the most hot humid thing you could ever imagine and like the seat belt would burn you it was um yeah those those are my memories of it that was my <laughs> first job but it's good yeah it was good i mean i had money in my pocket which was pretty cool and i felt like i was doing something and i was not bored so yeah that's my memories of it it's funny that you still have such clear memories of that job, even though it didn't sound like the most enjoyable thing in the world. No, I mean, there's just something about that period of time, right? Where like, there's a lot of things like it was a super mundane job. It repeated itself over and over again, but I like totally was cool with it. Like it wasn't a, like, it wasn't like an amazing thing. Like it wasn't like, oh, I had all these friends or, you know, I was the youngest person there. I wasn't like, there were other kids working. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it was something about that, just like that feeling of like, oh, I'm putting work, I'm getting paid for it. It was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I do remember parts of that job really vividly, even though it was like 25 years ago. Um, what about you, Cordelia? What was your, what was your first job out of high school? I feel kind of bad telling you this after hearing about that job that you had. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what did you do? Through my friend's dad, who worked for the University of Wyoming, I got hired onto a field crew to survey lynx habitat in the remote Wyoming mountains for the summer. So with my friends, we would hike all day in core trees and identify plants and then camp every night under the stars. That sounds terrible, Cordelia. (laughs) I just, I couldn't imagine why that would be fun. 
Yeah, I actually came back and worked for the university for three summers in a row after that because I just loved it so much. And the next two summers, I worked on a crew collecting data about Wyoming's amphibian population. We were monitoring the spread of a fungus and how it affected toads and frogs in our state. So yeah, we got paid to hike, camp, and catch frogs. And our crew, which was my, my some of my best friends, Tess, Don, and Oliver, we spent three months in that country outside of Pinedale, and we'd shift between the Wyoming and the Wind River ranges every few weeks. We got to backpack our gear in miles into remote wetlands and wade into cold streams and count frogs all day. And I just remember waking up in the morning, and we'd unzip our tents and roll out and stare out over just the most beautiful mountain landscape we'd ever seen. And our crewmate Oliver, every day he would come out of his tent and shake his head and cross his arms and say, well, just another shitty day in the office. (laughs) So we joked as teenagers that we'd found the best job we'd ever have in our entire lives. Do you think that's true? Well, I mean, I've had a ton of amazing jobs since that one. Obviously, this one is included. (laughs) (laughs) Very Um, good, very good. Yeah, had to throw that in there. But (laughs) Yeah, keep me happy, Cordelia. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I do wonder how different I would be if I hadn't had those summer jobs in my late teens. Because there was just something pretty epic about the wildness of it all. Like my mom, she called us feral when we got home at the end of the summer. And there was just a lack of supervision and an awareness of a deeper self that kind of seeped into our consciousness during those long uphill miles and the freezing alpine swims. And in the way that we had to learn our bodies from the inside out, like we didn't see ourselves in a mirror for three months. And there was just this sense of pride that for the first time we were doing work for a cause that we cared about to protect the places and the wildlife of Wyoming. And that above all, a university had actually entrusted a bunch of teenage dirtbags to collect data that would affect the future of our state's ecosystem. It just felt really good. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it was just a couple of months in the woods. And compared to longer experiences that you have in your life, you know, years in school or years spent working in other jobs. But I do, I really do think that those summers after high school were some of the most important experiences in shaping who I am today. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Today, we bring you a story of two high school grads. Back in 1971, they land this incredible summer gig. We all remember our first summer jobs. Some of us were lucky enough to stumble into the ones that would change our lives forever. I'm Fitz Cahal. I'm Cordelia Zars. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In the late 1960s, John Temple and his friend Dean Goodman were students at Point Grey High School in Vancouver, B.C. This is John. We were part of a group that started an anarchist club. When there was a student council election, we disrupted the student council campaign by running the entire club for president. Other candidates for student president gave speeches in the auditorium. When it was the club's turn to present, They chose a different format. We got up on stage, like a big group of us, 
with drums and started dancing around and yelling and completely juvenile. Here's John's friend, Dean. And that principal, he was so freaked out when we got up to talk. I hated school and I felt really confined by high school and all I wanted to do was get out and get into the real world. Every opportunity they got, weekends, vacations, summer break, Dean and John would outrun authority by escaping to the west coast of Vancouver Island. This is John. We could just be ourselves, like we would have fires and we'd cook and we would swim naked and run on the beach and, and nobody bothered us. There was a draw to being on the ocean and the rainforest that was so powerful for us. It was something about being on the edge of the land at the ocean that is, it's ultimately powerful. You know, the ocean is teeming with life. There's the rainforest behind you and there's nothing in front of you. You're right on the edge of the kind of world. Out on that wild edge of the world, the teenagers made their own rules, set their own schedules, cooked their own food. At that time, the west coast of Vancouver Island was quite remote. There weren't a lot of established campgrounds or trails yet. People didn't visit often, and the band of friends had free reign over great swaths of public land. They walked along the coast and up nearby mountains, built shelters in the woods to varying degrees of architectural integrity. No parents hassled them about chores. No teachers hounded them about homework they didn't want to do. They felt free. When Dean and John finally graduated from high school in 1971, they started asking some questions. It's that time when you get to go, oh my God, I'm my own person. What do I care about? And for me, it was, I cared about my friends immensely. And I cared about being out on the ocean. And I cared about being on the West Coast. John felt the same. Together, they applied for a forest service job, planting trees in Hope, B.C., about 100 miles inland from Vancouver. It wasn't the West Coast, but at least it would pay to get them outside. We got fired after a few weeks because the Forest Service uh, monitors the quality of the planting of each crew. And our volume was not good enough. And the reason it wasn't good enough is that um, the... Um, crew would smoke pot at lunch and then like get really slow and lazy. Dean and John claim they weren't the ones slacking on the job. In any case, they got canned along with the rest of the crew. So they packed their things, pocketed their paychecks, and headed to their beloved west coast of Vancouver Island, where they'd always found their problems to disappear. They decided to hike the length of the West Coast Trail, a 47-mile section that contours the island between the towns of Port Renfrew and Banfield. The trail, first created by the First Nations tribes of Huayat, Dot, and Pachita for travel and trade, earned its Western title as the Life-Saving Trail in the mid-1800s. As shipwrecks became more common along the treacherous coast, the Canadian government sponsored the construction of six shelters, a telegraph line, and a rough path to help stranded sailors make it safely home. Though it's a popular hike now, in 1971, the term trail was best kept in quotation marks. It was easy to get hurt on that trail at that time. You could easily get confused and get lost. You could 
stumble quite easily. You could fall off a log. Before they set out on their hike, Dean and John applied for an Opportunities for Youth grant to help repair and develop the trail to make it safer for hikers. The grant was part of a fund the Canadian government had established in the 1970s to get teens involved in protecting the outdoors. And we thought, well, we know this area as well as anybody. Maybe they'll give us money. The teenagers stumbled into a journalist named John Twig a few days into their backpacking trip, and he worked for the Sierra Club at the time. Twig asked them what they were up to, and John and Dean told him about their grant application to help repair the trail. Shortly after they finished the hike, John Twig published an article about them, and a few days later, Dean and John got a call. It was Ken Farkason, the co-founder of the Sierra Club in British Columbia. He'd read the article in the Vancouver Sun and thought these two outdoorsy teens might take a job he had in mind. A thousand bucks each for three months' work, and all we had to do was go to the Knit-Net Triangle and explore it thoroughly and photograph and document the features of the landscape, like any potential campsites, any remarkable groves of trees or bogs or anything interesting. Though it wouldn't be the grant they had applied for to repair the West Coast Trail, the Sierra Club's offer didn't sound too shabby. A summer surveying the Nitnat Triangle, the last old-growth rainforest on Vancouver Island. Three freshwater lakes, the Nitnat, Hobbiton, and Susiette, they form a triangle around about 90 square miles of land. The West Coast Trail borders a side of the triangle, so John and Dean knew where it was, but they'd never gone beyond the trail to poke around. In the 1700s, the Canadians colonized the New Chalnuth First Nations people and took control of the land. Since then, Westerners had never bothered to thrash through the thick rainforest deadfall to etch out campsites or to carve out trails. But starting in the mid-20th century, the logging industry began making claims on the land. The Sierra Club, hoping to preserve the old-growth forest before any clear-cutting started, began lobbying the Canadian government to include the triangle in the Pacific Rim National Park Preserve, which protected land just north of the Nitnat Triangle. So it was important then to try to find out where the attractive spots were, where uh, there were good beaches for uh, bring your canoes in. This is Ken Farkason, the one who'd seen the article about Dean and John in the paper. So we thought it'd be useful to have someone go in and do that exploration and mark up on the maps where the best sites and things were, and also where they could find any vestiges of the indigenous trails and so forth. Ken led the campaign to protect the Nitnat Triangle in 1969 for the Sierra Club. When he called the teenagers about a summer job, he got the sense that they were also passionate about protecting the West Coast from being logged. And they were interested, which spoke to the quality of the work we might get. Secondly, they were not couch potatoes. <laughs> and thirdly, did you have any uh, expertise in canoeing? Uh, they told us yes. I wasn't going to challenge that. You know, I think I did say, well, you capable of living on your own for some time? And uh, well, all right, yes. Okay, on you go. I asked Ken if he remembered what the job description was. It was to explore. Ken offered John and Dean the job. Incredulous of their luck, they immediately said yes. Suddenly we were like, we've got the greatest job anybody could ever have.
At the beginning of June, the teenagers packed up an old canoe, about 50 books, a tarp, a handful of notebooks, a film camera, printed maps, pencils, cooking supplies, and food to last a summer. They got a ride from a friend to the headwaters of Nittinat Lake. No phones, no GPS, a couple of band-aids for a first aid kit. They loaded up their canoe and paddled down the lake towards the ocean. Having hiked the West Coast Trail, they knew there was a lineman's shack at the mouth of the Klanoa River, several miles north of Nittinat Lake. It was one of the rustic cabins built for shipwreck sailors. They planned to camp out there for the summer. I remember the first day we started paddling and the canoe was so heavy and it was so windy against us that we actually, I remember us pulling ashore on the south side of Nitnat Lake and resting and just thinking, oh my God, like how are we going to get down this? Dean had never canoed before, despite what they told the Sierra Club in their interview. John showed him the basic paddle strokes, and slowly they made progress towards the southwestern mouth of the lake, which opens into the Pacific Ocean. The rapids coming out of the lake into the ocean are, it's really powerful. It's quite a big current. And I do remember getting out into the middle, and we were paddling like crazy, and we started <laughs> to go backwards. And I can remember thinking, oh my God, we're going to get sucked out into the breakers. And we paddled like absolute crazy people. We made it to shore, not quite where we wanted to be, but we did make it to shore. But I do remember the fear of that thinking, oh my God, we could die out here. They docked their canoe, a little bedraggled, and hiked their gear in the remaining five miles along the West Coast Trail to the cabin. It was a small one-room structure with no electricity, but it had a stove, windows, and room enough on the floor to accommodate two weary teenagers and their sleeping bags. Plus, the view didn't disappoint. In their backyard, they had a rainforest. Side yard, lake. Front yard, beach. And I still remember that view of going, oh my God, the geography was so powerful there. Once they'd settled into the cabin and gotten some rest, Dean and John spread maps of the Nittinat Triangle on the floor and planned their first expedition. They decided to investigate Hobbiton Lake first, on the northern edge of the Triangle. We were excited about going in and seeing the backcountry that we had never seen before. They packed supplies for a week, having no idea how long it would take them to navigate the route they penciled in on the map. They hiked back to their canoe and paddled across the Nittinat Lake, away from the ocean, to the mouth of a creek that connected it to Hobbiton Lake. They figured portaging the canoe might be easier in a creek bed than through the dense understory. It was a bit scary thinking, are we even in the right place? And you're looking at a map trying to locate the right creek going up to a river and you don't know. Eventually, they found a creek that looked like the one on the map. And that's actually where the work got really hard because there was no trail and we had never been in this area before, so we didn't know our own way. And we had never carried a a 16-foot canoe together through dense forests. Some places you'd have open forest floor because you'd have huge trees, but other places, trees fallen all over the place and you'd have to bend. And like, it was really sweaty, rough work. I just remember feeling a bit like an explorer, like we are climbing up this river. We weren't even sure we were on the right river. 
Throughout that first portage, John and Dean pop their heads out from under the canoe periodically to document the landscape around them. Some of the old growth trees were so enormous that the teenagers would stop, put down the canoe, and photograph one another standing in front of the trunk for scale. They took notes in a journal to accompany their photographs and mark their map to correspond with the landmarks they found. A grove of birch here, a meadow of ferns, an open forest floor that might make a good campsite for future visitors. And there's something so much larger than yourself in the environment that you find yourself in that you're just like, you know, they're magical forests. Those are magical forests, and that's what it feels like when you're in them. When they finally got to Hobbiton Lake, they climbed back in their canoe and circumnavigated the shoreline. They'd paddle for a while and then stop, sit still, and let the canoe glide along the placid surface of the lake. They'd listen, look, take in their surroundings. When they saw a sandy beach, they'd snap a photo and mark the location on the map, jotting down a short description. Along the southern shore of the lake, they drifted into a giant patch of lilies where trees grew straight out of the bottom of the lake. Not only was it still, but the feeling of being there and thinking no one's been here for a long, long, long time made it feel incredibly special. We weren't explorers in the sense of trying to get somewhere. We were explorers trying to be somewhere and understand it. Dean and John drank straight from the lakes and the streams. When they got hungry, they snacked on dried fruit and peanut butter. They chatted when they wanted and let the rich sounds of the forest spill into the silences in between. At night, they pulled their canoe ashore and found a quiet spot to make a fire and cook dinner. We didn't even have a tent. We had a piece of plastic and the bugs were so bad in the middle of the night, we decided we were gonna get into our canoe and sleep in the middle of the lake. So we got in the canoe and paddled out there, and then we put our sleeping bags under the seats in the canoe and slept in the bottom of the canoe. So here we are in the, out in the middle of the dark, in the dark, in the middle of the lake. There's no people around, and we're wedged between the, the bottom of the canoe and the seat and thinking, oh, my God, if we tip over, we will be dead because there's no way to get out between the seat and the canoe. They spent their first week surveying Hobbiton Lake, sleeping out and keeping a journal of everything they saw. Then they returned to the cabin to compile their findings and rest. In the rainforest, it rains a lot. They were happy to get back under a roof. We had no weather forecast or anything like that. So we had to make a judgment on when we would go exploring. And we literally called it exploring. Like, when are we going to be resting? And when are we going to be sort of exploring? Dean and John, of course, didn't have internet or anything that connected them to the outside world. In their time off, they read voraciously. They swam in the nearby lake, cooked rice and beans, and... Didn't we have a cassette tape recorder and we used to heat the batteries up in the stove to get them going because they would run out of juice. And we, I think we listened to Neil Young maybe the entire summer. You're right. We did have music. Yeah, we were insane. I can't believe we carried that. (laughs) (laughs) We probably read Carlos Castaneda and listened to Neil Young over and over and over again. 
Most days, it was easy for Dean and John to forget they were working, that someone was actually paying them to live out these perfect summer days. But the more time they spent wandering through the knit drinking from its waters and craning their necks to see the tops of its oldest trees, the more they realized how important it was to protect this place from logging. The power of the landscape humbled them, filled them with a sense of belonging. They wanted to be able to come back here for the rest of their lives, and they knew it could all be gone, cleared to the ground in a matter of months. That thought filled them with a sick sense of urgency to keep it safe. They knew in some small way it was up to them, the two kids willing to head out into the wild for the duration of a summer. No one else from the Sierra Club was out here, and it felt like it fell on them to gather the information about the triangle that could convince the Canadian government to preserve it forever. After a break, Dean and John head back into the woods. Their mission, to capture the magic of the Nitnat Triangle and bring it home. Stay with us. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend... I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. On their second multi-day trip, Dean and John set out to document Susiat Lake, just up the coast from their cabin. To reach the lake, they hiked past a huge set of waterfalls that cascade directly onto the beach, and then portaged their canoe through the forest towards the lake. By that time, they'd gotten their systems more dialed. They felt stronger paddling and more efficient carrying the canoe through the forest. They didn't wind up lost as often. They traded off who made written descriptions of the area and who took photos. My favorite writer at the time was Jack Kerouac, and I probably wrote pages in one sentence. Hobbiton Creek is a gem. The waters are warm in summer and always clear. It is lined by enormous trees and along the banks there is a wide variety of flowers and shrubs which attract a rich bird life. We were poor photographers, that's for sure, because it wasn't digital, so you couldn't see what you were taking. And, you know, the light was really weird under the canopy and there's hot spots and shadows. And and for us, we were just kind of doing the best we could and we didn't worry about it too much. We just became very much a team. After several more trips into the forests and lakes of the Nitnat Triangle, Their maps crowded with markings, and the spaces left undocumented 
became fewer and farther between. They filled journals, finished books, cooked together, and watched the resident otter swim through the river near the cabin. Midsummer, Dean and John took a single trip back to Vancouver to develop the film from their camera, nervous their photos wouldn't be good enough to turn into the Sierra Club. Their photos came out okay, and reassured, Dean and John restocked on food and headed back into the wild. The city, they didn't miss it. We found it very difficult to be constrained by the structures that were in place, and we didn't feel that way when we were on the West Coast. They spent their final weeks checking off the rest of the spots in the triangle they hadn't surveyed. We had our notes and we had our topographical maps that we had marked up and everything. I think we knew, like, we got this. We've covered it. I remember being quite excited. Like, we had accomplished it and we had been up in the lakes. We had written about it and photographed it and we were sort of ready. All too soon, the end of August arrived. The sun traced a shorter arc through the Canadian sky, and the teenagers took a few last swims and began packing up the cabin for their return to civilization. Hiking back to the Nitnat from the Klanawa cabin, you know, we knew that route so well. It was like our own front gate path. We knew every step of that path, and we knew what we would find along the way, and you're savoring everything that you're looking at and seeing. and But you also know that time moves on and there's no way to stay in that place. You carry it with you, but there's no way to stay in it. And it was probably a whole day's journey for us to get from the Klanawa to the top of Nittinat Lake. And when we got there, I remember camping there that night. And the next day, my father showed up with a friend and the head in Nittinat Lake was also very much out in the boonies. There was nothing there except the boat ramp into the lake. And my father showed up. I remember him driving up, and he got out of the car with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, John, you and I had been eating beans and bannock <laughs> and, like, salal berries and, you know, some smoked fish from the fishermen. And my father showed up with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I, I do remember absolutely clearly you and I sitting on a log and eating the entire bucket. And he was just staring at us like, you people are insane. What have you been doing for the last three months? They piled into the car with Dean's dad took one last backward glance at the lakes and the trees and felt the lurch of the engine tugging them home. Dean and John submitted all their film, journals, and maps to the Sierra Club. Within the next year, the organization published a book called The West Coast Trail in Nittinat Lakes, a trail guide by the Sierra Club of British Columbia. Though the Kerouacian sentences were edited down to size, Dean and John's descriptions and photographs of the land fill the book's pages, and it helped convince the Canadian government that this special place deserved to be protected. In 1972, the year after Dean and John's job, the government voted to permanently include the Nitnat Triangle in the Pacific Rim National Park Preserve. 
And so it was pretty meaningful that, you know, we were just kids. We passed off our work and people who were much smarter and much more mature and capable than us. But we knew we were part of something where we felt like we were making a difference and we were on the right side of something. Those questions that Dean and John had for themselves right out of high school, who they were, what they stood for, suddenly it felt like they did have some answers. That summer, being out there alone in that kind of wildness, I think, I think it really changed my whole attitude towards you know, work and the future and the way I kind of saw nature after that. It wasn't just kind of being there for the weekend. It's like we were living as part of it and, and seeing it really, really raw. And that always has stuck with me. We didn't have to be constrained by what others thought we could do, that we sort of were willing to take on challenges. And I think that's affected what both of us have done since then. In the years following their summer job in the Nitnat, Dean and John continued to say yes to adventures that gave them a sense of independence and purpose. Together, they built a log cabin from scratch with no experience. Dean started an architecture firm during a national recession. John followed his passion for writing and began a career in journalism. They're still in touch today, though it's been almost 50 years since they've worked in the Nitnat, and they live nearly 3,000 miles apart. Both Dean and John are now exceptionally accomplished in their respective careers, and in a way, they trace it all back to the summer of 1971. There was a sort of a, a level of confidence, just keep moving keep trying things and, and live with that feeling that you carry with you of the freedom, the wildness that we felt. And, and I think I was able to carry that forward. It set us up for thinking I should always be working at something that I love to do where I feel like it's important, whatever the job is, feel like it's very worthwhile doing. I used to tell people that I had the best job in my life when I was 18 years old. Thank you, John and Dean, for sharing your story. John now lives in San Francisco, and Dean's in Toronto, but they both still call the west coast of Vancouver Island home, and they visit as often as they can. Music today from Ken Christensen, Bradley Carter, Kai Angle, Cloud9, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by me, Cordelia Zars, Ashley Langholtz, and Jen Alchel. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.